Now, this morning's scripture reading uh, is from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. When I was in college, I took a course called The History of the Future. And the point of this course was to study world's fairs and science fiction and various films to see how they depicted the future. And it was fascinating to see all the imaginative ways of solving current problems in futuristic ways. Uh, Not all of them were equal, though. Uh, For instance, uh, the 1970s movie Soylent Green uh, deals with overpopulation and pollution, and they solve it by some advanced technology. Spoiler alert, it's cannibalism. Uh, And if you're upset because I spoiled that, you've had almost 50 years to see this movie, so uh, no harm, no foul. But when it comes to technology, human innovation spans as far as human imagination. And we see this, even when you think about the cartoon, The Jetsons, right? Uh, The Jetsons was set in 2062. When I realized that, I'm thinking to myself, Elon, man, where are you at? We've got self-driving cars, but we don't have much longer until 2062 to get those things in the air. He's never going to hear this, so I don't even know who I'm talking to. But in his book on engineering failure, Duke professor Henry Petrosky asks a good question. He says, why is it that despite our technological improvements, why is it that buildings and bridges still fail? Why do planes and cars still crash? Well, his answer is is that uh, we fail to learn from our mistakes. This is what he says particularly, quote, unfortunately, the lessons learned from failures are too often forgotten. He goes on and says, the same mistakes that were made 3,300 or 30 years ago can be made again today and can be expected to be made indefinitely into the future. Failures are part of the technological condition. This morning, we've got an opportunity to learn from our mistakes. From a story that was written over 3,000 years ago, a technological marvel that had one single monumental flaw, the human heart. So as we look at Genesis chapter 11 and and, and explore the Tower of Babel a little bit, I'm going to look at it under three headings. 
the purpose, the problem, and the promise of technology. Again, go ahead and get the text in front of you, your Bible, open it up, turn it on to Genesis chapter 11 as we see the purpose, the problem, and the promise of technology. First, with the purpose of technology. My working definition of technology is technology is what we make to solve our problems. Very simply put, it's what we make to solve our problems. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, it says this. In verse 3, come let us make. In verse 4, come let us build. You see, these are echoes of Genesis chapter 1, 26, where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. God made us to be makers. We were made as makers in the image of our maker. There's another way to put that. And so just like God, we are to film, fill and form the earth. We are to spread out. And, and that's actually a difficulty. It's a challenge. It's a problem that we have to overcome and that I believe God expected us to use technology in order to do. So in Genesis chapter 2, there's this section that most of us probably skip over because we don't really know what's going on. But I'm going to read it. Genesis 2.10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. See, I believe what this signals is that there's potential in the created order that we were meant to bring forth, and we were meant to use technology to do it. That gold has to be mined. It has to be smelted. It has to be made into a useful uh, substance so that we could use it eventually, you see in the story of Scripture, to overlay the temple with it. God intended for us to use technology because God made us to be makers. This isn't just a biblical insight. This is actually true in, in secular realms as well. That's why in 1960, when Jane Goodall shocked the scientific community by showing the world that chimpanzees made tools. This was unheard of because up to that point, human beings were the tool-making creature. The phrase was this, man, the tool-maker, alone among the creatures, was able to solve our problems by making tools. And then a dedicated, devoted scientist comes along and shows that chimps would use straws to get ants out of anthills. And it shocked the community because even in the secular scientific community, it was just assumed and understood that core to being human is what we make. So when it comes to technology, some of us are Luddites and some of us are early adopters. In other words, what I mean is some of us uncritically reject technology and some of us uncritically receive technology. And I just want to challenge you wherever you are on that spectrum, and it is a spectrum, uh, I want to challenge you to think, I don't know that you know how much technology really affects you. Let's just give this one an example. Consider that blessed gift from above that we Floridians know as the thermostat. Right? I mean, this is one of the most important technological advancements that we use on a daily basis, and it replaced something that was in every home known as a hearth. At least in the north, homes were built with fireplaces, and, and these were a gathering place. They were the center of every home, which is where the word hearth comes from, the word heart. And why this matters is because the, the place where the fire was is where there was warmth in the cool evening. 
The place where the fire was is where we would gather as a family to cook our food, is where we would gather for light to read books and to play games. And so the hearth became the center of the home. That's why we have that phrase, hearth and home. Now, each room in our house has air conditioning. And, and it separates us. It, it, it kind of segments us into in each individual rooms. We don't have a reason to gather into one focal point in the home anymore. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I would much rather tap a button than go outside, sharpen an axe, cut down a tree, chop it into wood, stack it, bring pieces of it inside, light a fire, and then finally have the warmth that I need. I would much rather tap a button. But I want to remind us that we can't be too assuming of what our technology really does to us, the, the effects it has personally and socially. And so humans have to recognize there's trade-offs to the tools we make. We make tools, we make technology to solve our problems, but we don't always solve the right problems, and we don't always solve them in the right way. As far as I can tell, the first example of the use of technology by human beings in the Bible is when Adam and Eve used fig leaves to cover their own nakedness, the problem of their shame, the problem of their vulnerability. And we still use technology to cover our vulnerability today. So I want to look at this. I want to look at the problem of technology. Now, one of the secular stories that we all live within and, and, and have a, a challenge not believing is what's called the myth of progress. Essentially, the myth of progress says uh, that for most of us, it's hard not to feel that history is basically progressing forward along this upward trending line of increased security and relative happiness. We all kind of feel that that's the case. Many of us believe that technology is what's going to solve most, if not all, of our problems, whether it's disease or death or injustice or poverty or famine. Because after all, aren't these all just malfunctions in the machine? whether it's the human machine, the social machine, or the global machine. In his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker says this, as technolo technological progress allows the exchange of goods and ideas over longer distances and among larger groups of trading partners, hear this, listen to what he says, other people become more valuable alive than dead. They switch from being targets of demonization and dehumanization to potential partners in reciprocal altruism. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, it's, technolo it's technology and commerce that's going to solve our inclination to demonize and dehumanize other people. My question is, is that true? Like, when you look out of the world, does that seem like that's even true? In other words, he says, as we just have more partners that we can exchange goods and ideas with, we will increasingly find other humans to be more valuable. Again, is that true? The story of Babel shows that there's a malfunction at the heart of the myth of progress. Look with me at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why is it that the top is in the heavens? Why is that? What, what's the significance of it? Well, if you remember the context of Genesis so far, this is Genesis 11, and it's right after Genesis 10 where we see that these are all the descendants of Noah. 
In other words, they would have heard stories of a day when there was a great flood where the floodwaters covered the tallest mountains. You can understand why there'd be a desire to have a tower that reached even higher than that, high all the way up to the heavens where they would be secure and insulated from a potential flood should it ever come again. But along with that story, they would have also heard God's promise that he'd never do that again, signified by the rainbow in the sky. But much like us, they let their fear override their faith in the promises of God. And so what ends up happening is they begin to build. They begin to make technology that solves their problem. Look again at verse 4. It also says that they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. As always, God's command to fill the earth is accompanied by his blessing to be fruitful and multiply. In the Bible, gift and task are inseparable. But much like us, they let their fear override their faith in the commands of God. And so instead, they decide to insulate themselves. And so instead of faith, they use technology to fortify themselves against their fears. Let me ask you, what are are some of your core fears? What are some of the things that deep down at at the lowest place you're unsettled by? I'm just going to name two that I think are true for most human beings and are in the text that we're looking at today. Those two are insignificance and insecurity. Insignificance and insecurity. Again, look at verse 4. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, then we'll be significant finally. How many of us are incessantly checking social media or our email waiting to see something come in because boredom is unbearable? Or maybe some of you play video games far more than you ought to because you find more purpose in them than you do in real life. Or some of us have this this addiction to that slight dopamine hit that we get from the little number above the app notifying you that you matter. Right? We turn to our tech to find significance, to deal with our fear of insignificance. But there's also the fear of insecurity. Verse 4, they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. In other words, then we'll be hemmed in. Then we'll have the security that we really need. Most of us just assume that modern medicine will deliver us from our own mortality. Right? We, We have more confidence in a vaccine than we do in God. Now, I'm not saying that these are necessarily in conflict. In fact, I praise God for modern medicine. Life expectancy has nearly doubled since 1850, okay? And it's increased worldwide by six years just since 1990 alone. Modern medicine is marvelous. But the temptation to trust in the work of our own hands is always at odds with with trusting in God. And so hear me, there's no vaccine for mortality. The only remedy for death is resurrection, And so when we trust in the work of our hands, there's this tendency to insulate ourselves so we don't have to trust in God to come through for us. Now, we live in a time of great fear, and so that temptation to trust in tech for what only God can do is at an all-time high. And, And so in light of our fears, we find ourselves actually despising our weakness. We see our limitations as liabilities, I'm curious to know, where in your life do you curse your own limits? Where do you feel your boundaries as burdensome? Where do you basically equate your finitude with fallenness? 
What I mean is this, is there anything quite like Google that promises omniscience? Right, like, I don't know of anything else that promises omnipotence like nuclear power or the stock exchange. What else promises omnipresence quite like global communication and modern travel, right? So, so those are just the three classical omni attributes of God that we all are increasingly finding in these technological advancements of ours. The problem is not technology. It's our temptation to solve our problems without reference to God. The problem is ascendancy without dependency. And that's what technology does more than just about anything else. And so as soon as we look to technology to do for the human race what only God can do, destruction is not far behind. The irony of our technology is that it's actually probably making us more vulnerable. Let me give you an example. On September 1st, 1859, the British astronomer Richard Carrington, he witnessed what's called a coronal mass ejection, which is a burst of solar winds and magnetic energy that escaped from the sun. All right. In 1859, it wasn't that big of a deal. But in 2008, the National Research Council released a report that says there's a one in eight chance that it will happen again before the year 2022. 2022, a one in eight chance. Now, again, it wasn't a big deal back in 1859, but if it happened today, it would fry every iPhone. It could melt the core of every electrical transformer and every substation in the industrialized world. We're talking catastrophic destruction causing trillions of dollars of damage and crippling our infrastructure so severely uh, that it could actually lead to an apocalyptic breakdown in society. The irony is that we still turn to tech to fortify us from our fears. And yet it's making us more vulnerable over time. It's not cities. It's not towers. It's not technology. It's our utter dependence on what we make that displeases the Lord. Damien said last week, if you listen to the sermon, if you were here, that every idol promises us two things. You will not surely die, and you will be like God. Security and significance. Every idol leads with those promises. And so think about what's actually happening here in our text this morning. Look with me again at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Notice that word, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So without stone or mortar, they just began to manufacture their own building materials. But when the text says they made bricks and burned them thoroughly, that's set in opposition from sun-dried bricks. And this, this is important. It might seem like a nuance, and I think it is, but it's to cue our attention to something. In the Hebrew Bible, there are four words that are most commonly used for, to, to burn. The first one is to burn with anger. That's like the emotional use. The next one is to burn for fire. Consider the burning bush in Exodus 3. The third one is, is to burn for aroma or incense, kind of like lighting a candle. The fourth one is to burn as a sacrifice, immolation, a, a form of worship. The word in our text, to burn thoroughly, is sacrificial language. They are offering their tech on the altar of human arrogance and pride. This is a, a, an act of worship that we're seeing here in the text. This is not benign. It's actually a significant affront against Almighty God. 
And there's a thread, there's a through line through all of Scripture that you can trace from beginning to end, and that is this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so God's response to this in verse 7 is that he says, come, let us go down. Come, let us go down. Not because God is daunted by our dedication to deify ourselves. Not because God is somehow threatened by our refusal to live within our boundaries. No, 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 that's not the problem. He knows that we are threatened by our refusal to live within our boundaries. Unless God intervenes, verse 6 says, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. We will divide and destroy ourselves in our desire for autonomy. So let me ask you, where in your life is God currently opposing your self-dependence? Where is he in his mercy not letting you get away with it? One pastor on March 26th of this year, only a couple weeks into the the national COVID lockdown, uh, had some really uh, significant comments to make. His name's Sam Albury, and he says this about the lockdown. Maybe God is giving us exactly what we've been wanting. We've prioritized individualism over community, the material over the relational, the virtual over the physical, and now we have it. More than we can likely manage. We've also been chanting the virtue of self-expression. So let's be honest, several days into lockdown, is self-expression still the highest good? Do the people we live with long that we'd express ourselves more? And forced to spend so much time with our actual self, are we so confident of its essential goodness? Are we just stoked to have so much undistracted time with ourselves? Or might we be finding ourselves wearying? Maybe, quote, you do you isn't the answer we thought it was. Many of us are being confronted with the reality of who we really are, end quote. Just like Babel, God is willing to come down and confront us with the reality of who we really are. Creatures, limited creatures, dependent creatures, finite creatures. And this is God's mercy because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's look now at the promise of technology. It's important to notice that there's a structure to this story. And what I mean by that is there's a pivot right at the center of the text. Let me explain it to you. Have the text in front of you if you can. Verse 1, the story begins with the whole world speaking a common language. Verse 9, the story ends with the whole world speaking different languages. Then we move in. Verse 2, the people are settled. Verse 8, the people are scattered. Verse 3 and 4, the people resolve to build, saying, come, let us. Verse 6 and 7, God resolves to bewilder, saying, come, let us. You can see the parallel, back and forth, back and forth, leading to the center, the hinge, the point that makes sense of the whole story, at which the whole story takes a turn. And hear me, your story and the world's whole story takes a turn right here at verse 5. And the Lord came down. And the Lord came down. Because every way of life attempts to build to the heavens. Whether it's Islam's five pillars or Buddhism's enlightenment or secularism's ideal of the self-made man or woman, all of these are attempt to build, to strive, to climb, to secure our standing. Hear me, all counterfeit religion is about human ascent. Only biblical religion is about divine descent. The Lord came down. Only Christianity teaches that the Lord came down. 
you, you see this tower was being built as a connection point between heaven and earth, between God and man. And that connection point exists. There's only one connection point quite like that. In the Gospel of John, chapter 151, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is the true tower of Babel. In other words, in Jesus Christ, the infinite one became finite. The limitless one took on your limitations. The all-powerful one became weak on the cross. The all-knowing asked why on the cross. The all-present one was stuck, nailed to a piece of wood. Listen to me. God used Roman execution technology to solve your greatest problem. And if you would come to him, in Jesus Christ, your, your weakness is met with his strength. Your limits are wrapped up in his limitless love. Your desire for security is found in the one who is a hiding place for us. Your desire, your search for significance ends only in the one who says, I will give you my name. You belong to me. And so as we see in the text that only Jesus can set us free to use our technology, not to mask our fears, but to serve our neighbors. So what is the promise of technology? Well, like everything else, Jesus can and will redeem technology. Um, I want to close by looking at a promise in uh, one of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Look this up later if you can't flip there now. The promise in Micah chapter 4, 3, 3 through 5, is basically that Jesus alone can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. In other words, Jesus is even able to take and redeem our rebellious technology. Listen to what the prophet says. He, that is Jesus, shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Hear this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Weapons of death will be transformed into tools of life. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now technology is being used for equity. It goes on. And no one shall make them afraid. All fears are dealt with. Our utter vulnerability is met with complete security. And it goes on, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So you know that this is legit. It's going to happen. And, and, and it asked, let me ask the question, what is it that's at the root of our rebellious use of technology? Verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We who walk in the name of our Lord Jesus are not mastered by what we make, but we use them as means to love God and our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you climbed up on the cross that you might bridge heaven and earth, that we might not need to climb to the heavens, that we don't have to build with the works of our own hands to get to you because you came to us. Holy Spirit, come down. Come down, fill us, free us, woo us to see Jesus as better than anything we would make with our own hands. It's in his name we pray. Amen.